Welcome to the latest episode of the Forward Thinking CFO. My guest today is Magdalena Markovic, CFO of Eelpower, a leading battery storage business. Now, this is a relatively new sector, and I'm hoping we'll learn a lot about this uh, important new asset class today. So welcome, Magdalena, to the Forward Thinking CFO. Hi, Stephen. Hello there. So let's start, as we normally do, with a little bit of career history. You've had a, a very varied background in the past and perhaps not a typical one for a CFO. So uh, that would be interesting for our guests. Perhaps you could give us a little rundown of your career to date. Yeah, of course. So as you say, I, I have a slightly non-traditional path to the CFO role rather than you know coming through the ranks of sort of accountancy or, or audit firms and you know working my way up through than the various company finance roles. I actually started my career in, in the consultancy industry. I studied in Brussels and on finishing my studies, I, I joined the consulting division of Arthur Anderson. And, you know, Arthur Anderson was uh, obviously a, a large audit firm, but, but also had a quite a, a large consulting team. So, you know, I, I joined them in, in Belgium. I kind of had the experience of, uh, of the Enron scandal in, in 2002, which was shortly after, after I started on, on my career journey. And I've also then kind of lived through the collapse of Anderson and how that all unfolded. I stayed with them through the merger. In, in, in our case, we joined Deloitte and I later relocated to New York, where I started focusing on financial services clients. And one of my clients in New York was uh, was Morgan Stanley. And in 2004, I moved across and joined them. And that sort of started my career really in, in the banking sector. So so first consulting and, 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 then, and then I moved into banking. I then relocated back to London and joined Lehman Brothers. I worked in the bank's real estate platform, focused basically on, on sort of commercial property investments. And I, I did that for, for a couple of years. And kind of running up to the summer of 2007, I decided I, I was going to sort of take a break. And the sort of driving force behind, behind that was I was thinking about a career switch and, and moving out of advisory and moving out of, out of banking and, and into industry. And so I sort of needed a plan on, on how to make that transition and, and, and how to do that. And it seemed like doing an MBA was, uh, was going to be a, a, a way forward. So in the summer of 2007, I, I left the bank, I moved to Barcelona, and I started a, a two-year MBA program at, um, at ESA Business School. And, you know, it was a great period. It was a, a great city to, to be living in for a couple of years, and, and I had a very good time. But the MBA also coincided with, obviously, the 2008 financial crisis. And so while, you know, I was in my sort of MBA bubble for, for a couple of years and, and just sort of watching everything unfold from, from the outside, it also became kind of clear, fairly clear, you know, early on that, you know, jobs post-crisis were few and far between. And, and especially for, you know, career switching bankers, that was going to be a challenge. So, you know, as kind of life happens, you reappraise and, and recalibrate. And so I returned to financial services after the MBA. I joined Rothschild here in London in 2009. And, you know, perhaps kind of slightly naively expecting that, you know, the financial crisis would blow over. It'll, it'll be 12 months. I'll keep my head down and, you know, I'll be back on my path to 
moving out of financial services and moving out of uh, out of a, an advisory role and, and into industry. You know, sometimes life is planned. I ended up staying seven years at Rothschild. I had a very, very good career there. I, I enjoyed working at the bank. And yeah, and so my my kind of plans have changed a little bit. But in 2016, following the birth of my son, I decided it was sort of now or never. And it was a bit of a, a trigger. And I thought, okay, I I really now am going to make that that move. And so I took a, a bit of time for maternity and, and a bit of a break to just have a have a bit of thinking space. And then I initially started a sort of, you know, part-time informal role to help a startup company in the med tech space kind of get off the ground. And it was really just to get my, you know, myself out there again and, and a little bit my brain back in action, having having been out for, for about 10 months. But that actually turned out to be um, quite a useful experience because it then allowed me to secure my first role, which was CFO of a high-intensity fitness boutique called One Rebel, where I spent a little while. And then I joined Eelpower. And, and, and from then on, I've joined in, in 2018 and, and I've been with the team ever since. So I'm sort of coming up to five years almost now. Yeah. So was there, was there something in particular driving that desire to get into an industrial or into industry rather than in a sort of advisory capacity and 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 then how did you find that transition yeah so so i've you know i've always wanted to be part of a business and and drive a business forward and i think in an advisory capacity you know you you kind of build a portfolio of roles and projects and you work for lots of companies and it's a great learning ground but ultimately you kind of move from project to project, from client to client. And it didn't feel necessarily kind of that that tangible to me. So, you know, when I moved out and, and when I left Rothschild, I didn't necessarily have a kind of clear view of what I wanted to do next. But I had a few thoughts around, you know, what was important to me in the next role and, and what I wanted to avoid. And so, you know, that kind of set of parameters allowed me to, to think about the opportunities that that I was starting to consider. And first, I wanted to make sure that I was able to leverage my past experience, you know, whether it was consulting or city. And I thought about, you know, what have I done before and, and how those experiences could be useful so that I can quickly add value to any business that I join. And I also wanted to have, as I said, impact and, and influence and frankly, you know, a seat at the table alongside the CEO and, and alongside the management team. And I figured you know, I did a lot of capital raising and, and so I had capital raising skills, which which could be useful to growth businesses. And my kind of consulting and, and advisory experience from, from my first job was going to be useful in, in sort of building teams and processes and so on. And in terms of, you know, the types of businesses that I was looking for, you know, I, I kind of ruled out big companies where typically change is, is slow to implement. And, and I was going to be just largely, you know, a kind of cog in a big machine. And then on the other hand, on the other side of the scale, startups didn't really necessarily need, you know, the skill set that I had. I was too experienced and and there isn't really a need for a proper finance function in, in early stage startup companies. So that kind of narrowed my search down to smaller, you know, typically private companies that were at this pivotal point in their journey, transitioning from, from startup or, or proof of concept to preparing to scale. And those types of companies, you know, they do need a proper finance function and a proper finance professional who can help them raise capital. 
for the next phase and, and also help them grow, you know, by putting in place relevant processes and systems and, and bringing in the right skill sets from the outside and, and putting corporate governance and so on and so forth. So, you know, so those were kind of a set of criteria and, and as I said, parameters that, that helped me focus and, and narrow down on, on the types of opportunities. And then I guess the other thing was, you know, was sector. Yeah, initially, I, I, you know, I thought I was kind of sector agnostic and, and I didn't think it really mattered, you know, whether the company was sort of, you know, making widgets or, or, or you know, complicated <laughs> medical devices. But, you know, having kind of spent a bit of time in the startup and, and, then, and then in the fitness industry, I actually realized that, that the sector did matter. And this is why, you know, One Rebel, you know, wasn't necessarily so interesting for me, but, but Eel Power really was. It was much closer to what I had done before in terms of, you know, I've, I've raised capital for, for, you know, businesses that had big assets typically on the ground. And, and, you know, if you think about the oil and gas industry, and in that sense, this was similar, but also just thinking about the opportunity and and what you know how batteries fit in into the wider energy transition when i kind of learned a bit more about it and 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 you know as i was sort of thinking about the business in in preparation for the interviews or 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 later i just thought the scale of the opportunity is huge and and it was very very interesting and so yeah that was much more complementary in terms of my my interests and in terms of what i kind of was just what i wanted to do Sure. Yeah. And um, I think you're right. Actually, batteries, uh, the whole battery industry is fascinating. I'm hoping that you can shed a little light on that for us, because I think a lot of people probably don't know a great deal about you know, how the battery industry works and, and maybe see, you know, maybe even have driven past these things and not realise that that's what they were, a bunch of containers in a field sometime. Yeah. But uh, and the obvious thing that um, we, we might think about is the arbitrage idea where you know you, you buy power when it's cheap and you sell it when it's expensive but there's a lot more to it than that isn't there perhaps you could give us an idea of the, the sort of range of um revenue streams that there are available yeah well if you think about you know the the, the electricity system that we have in the uk but also elsewhere and the evolution that you know has been happening over over the last few years you know and ever greater proportion of of the electricity that we consume is is coming from wind and solar right but you know wind is very intermittent and 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 solar doesn't doesn't necessarily you know operate at night when the when the sun doesn't shine so this intermittency of renewables causes problems for the grid the other problem for the grid is that there's an imbalance between where the renewable power is generated and, and where, is, where it is consumed. And this is true, especially in the UK, but also elsewhere in countries like Germany or, or, or elsewhere in, in, on the continent and, and the rest of the world. And, you know, the laws of physics say that electricity is very hard to store. So how do you manage that? The grid effectively must be in balance at all times where you have an equal amount of energy that is produced and, and consumed in any given period. Because if you can't store it, then, then you, know, you have to constantly be in balance. Now, historically, this was much easier to achieve because we had a lot of what's called dispatchable power on the system. If you think about, you know, coal or gas or, or other dispatchable plants, they can be, you know, turned up or down or, or off to meet the required changes in demand at any given point in time. As we move towards a kind of more renewables driven system, 
to ensure kind of efficient functioning and 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 to manage the intermittency caused by renewables the power needs to be smooth and and it needs to be shifted to where it needs to be so you know this is where batteries come in effectively and and in simple terms like you said they take power off the grid by charging in periods when you have you know too much output or 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 low demand um and then they discharge this power when when it's needed so if you think about it batteries don't generate electricity. They're not generators like all other systems on the grid. They manage the volatility. And so in that context, an empty battery is, is just as valuable as a full one. And that's, you know, that's, that's very interesting if you think about that, really, because people don't necessarily think of batteries as being volatility tools. So yeah, so they're very, very important in terms of providing those balancing services. And they get paid through a variety of revenue streams, which they can shift between. So some of those revenue streams um, are what's called ancillary services, where batteries balance the system by effectively providing a service to ensure that the grid operates in a stable way by managing the frequency. So, So the frequency response services and the grid is now evolving and moving towards dynamic containment, dynamic moderation, which are all a type of frequency response service, but but specifically suited to batteries because they are much, much faster to respond. So, so batteries are, are perfect for that. Batteries can also provide reserve or, or backup power when it's needed, so to, to start up a system. They can also provide synthetic inertia. Again, this is important because as we move towards more renewable we need to replace the physical inertia that's being lost from a traditional system where you have you know large spinning generators that provide that inertia we we don't have that now with with renewables so batteries can and do that and provide that 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 service so they get paid for effectively participating in the market and providing all these services but they also trade they trade power in the short term market so so they buy and sell power in in what's called the day ahead market the intraday market, and they can, you know, arbitrage between these different markets and, and between these different revenue streams. And then finally, they can participate in the grid's balancing mechanism, which is effectively the, the ESOs, the, the electricity system operator's main tool to balance the system almost in real time. So, so as you get closer and closer to, to the delivery period, the grid needs to ensure, as I said at the beginning, that the system is 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 fully in balance. And, and again, batteries can fulfill that role for which they get paid. So yeah, so these revenue streams are all available to batteries and, and, and batteries can move between revenue streams. And as the ESOs kind of become more sophisticated and things become more automated, they are able to use flexible assets like batteries in a smarter way. So we're seeing batteries participating in all these markets more and more frequently. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot to it, isn't there? <laughs> so what does the supply chain look like for you, you when you're uh, constructing a, a battery site? Batteries require a lot of rare earth metals. So what are you actually buying? you buying complete batteries uh, and com- completed sets of control electronics, or, or is that something that you do as part of your value add? Yeah, so, so our role is we acquire ready-built sites we then construct them and then we operate them. We are an owner operator of battery storage sites, but we procure each element 
of the puzzle independently. So, so we have relationships with the manufacturers of the batteries and, and we procure the batteries. We then also tender out for what's called the balance of plants. So everything that, that you know, goes around in building the site and in preparing the site in order for the batteries to then be connected to the grid. And we also oversee the whole construction process. And, and this allows us to kind of keep on top of the quality and, and make sure that the projects are delivered in a timely and, and most cost-efficient way. We don't buy what, what's called a full wrap. And that is effectively a, a solution where, where some of our, our peers tender out effectively the entire process and, and, um, and effectively buy a kind of turnkey project. So we buy the batteries in, like you say, a, a containerized, it's a containerized solution. So, so the batteries come in a, effectively a kind of 40 foot container and everything is, is in there, as you say, the electronics and, and, um, and all the, the management tools are in there. But we effectively procure those directly with the manufacturer. We negotiate the warranties, you know, the service agreements and so on, because we think, you know, all those elements are, are critical in how batteries are later operated and their availability and, and how they work. And, and, you know, all of that ultimately goes to the bottom line. So having control of that and having an understanding of how you're going to use the batteries, how you're going to trade them, and therefore how the battery needs to respond and needs to be able to operate and therefore having the right warranty is all really, really important to us. So we effectively control all, all of those elements. Now, you know, we don't manufacture the batteries and we, we don't have any influence over, you know, how the manufacturing of the battery happens. Now, we obviously have the ability to procure the batteries from different suppliers and, and, and we do that. You know, today, the main systems are, are lithium-ion and, you know, that is generally concentrated in China. China has effectively a, a monopoly on the processing of lithium. And so most batteries come from China. But, you know, we are also technology agnostic. So, you know, as the technologies evolve and, and as we get into longer duration storage and as, you know, there are other technologies that are being developed, we probably will change the types of batteries that, that we procure. So this is a kind of very fast moving industry and, and, and moving market. Yeah, and just what is the sort of life of, of one of these batteries? Are they... So ten years, or are we looking at more than that? Yeah. So, so the answer is it depends. It depends on on how you use the battery. So, batteries like your your battery in your in your phone or in your, in your laptop over time they they degrade, and that's just a, a natural process. And as that degradation happens, the battery is is less efficient, uh, and it can do less things. So. And there comes a point when the battery becomes, you know, unstable, the cells become unstable. So that typically happens once you get down to about 60% capacity. At that point, you need to replace the, the cells in the battery. So it's a relatively simple process. If you imagine that inside the 40-foot the container, there are little drawers that you simply, you know, take out one drawer and put in a new one and, and, and you replace the cells and off you go again. But yes, typically they last around 10 years. The, the cells last around 10 years. If you use the battery more aggressively, so you, you charge and discharge faster or you charge and discharge more deeply, that will use the battery faster. But usually you would only do that 
when there is an opportunity to make more money. So it's always a trade-off, you know, between degrading the battery faster, but capturing those revenues as well. And it's effectively a, a decision on how you want to operate the battery and, and, and how hard you want to run it. But yes, on average, they, they're about 10 years and then you have to replace them. And you've got a long run strategy question there, haven't you? About, and, and, and probably a lot of consideration of the data about how the battery is used and how it performs and that sort of thing. Is it very data driven or, or is it more? At a, yes, it's. So it, it, yeah. It is, <laughs> rather it's, than just being an overall very, strategy level. Yes, no, no, it's it's mm. very much data-driven. You know, the trading strategy, you know, gets kind of, you know, set at first monthly, then gets refined weekly and, and, and then daily. In reality, though, the batteries respond to circumstances and to markets in almost a kind of second-by-second second and minute-by-minute minute way. And a lot of the trading is is algorithmic because it's so fast. It's typically overseen by by electricity traders, but but the the, the batteries are are dispatched algorithmically, and you set parameters on how you want to run your battery. So you know you can't really damage a battery. They they have systems to protect themselves, but but also how you run it, you can set the parameters in advance, and and you can decide whether you want to capture opportunities in the market and. Again, going back to how batteries operate, they they capture volatility. So so they they try to you know capture moments when spreads are highest in the market and high spreads you know happen infrequently. So you want to be able to take advantage of those of those opportunities. And so you know it it often makes sense to run the battery a bit harder because those are are you know, relatively short time periods when those opportunities, the really big opportunities are available. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Forward Thinking CFO. Numeritas created this podcast as part of our mission to improve the way finance makes decisions. And I hope you find the conversations as useful and interesting as I do. We'd love to hear from you. Maybe you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or just talk privately about a forecasting or modelling challenge. Drop me a message through the contact form on our website at numeritas.co.uk and I'll get back to you. Now, back to the show. My understanding of batteries, uh, at least one of the key uses of them, is co-locating with solar or wind storage so that you know, the, you're, you're kind of doing some local arbitrage, if you like, or, or taking advantage there of the natural increases and decreases in generation caused by sun and, and winds and so on and um, which is i think how eel power started out but then you've moved to this sort of standalone battery storage uh, arrangement is, is there um a particular logical driver behind that yeah yeah so so you're right eel power was born out of a few you know previous businesses where where we it was focused on solar and, and then a couple hydro businesses and all of these had a battery co-located and this was actually a kind of crucial part of our learning journey. The first battery was put in place in, in 2014 alongside a solar farm. And this was you know, probably one of the first, if not the first battery in the UK. Then we had two hydro sites, one of which was across, there was a large flour mill across the river. And you know, if you think about flour mills, they, they operate you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So they're a huge consumer of electricity, and 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 there was, you know, they were perfect candidate for a kind of battery system alongside with a with a hydro. Now, you know, despite 
a huge amount of goodwill from all the parties, the contract was really hard to negotiate because the main concern for the flour mill was to ensure that it has a continuous supply of electricity and they don't want you messing around with their, with their supplies. But we did manage to put that in place and the contract did enhance returns. And so it, it kind of made the founders think um, about the value of the, of the batteries. But these were very, very small systems. They were, you know, 1.2 megawatts and really kind of getting to any kind of scale through this path was going to be pretty hard. But as I said, the, the, that experience and, and those learnings made us think that actually maybe a standalone model was going to be more interesting and, and more scalable. So that's how Eel Power was born. And our view for, for quite a long time was that, you know, you don't really need to co-locate you know, batteries alongside generation. You know, the 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 grid is a is a kind of market, and and you can solve the intermittency by having your batteries anywhere else on the grid, not necessarily not necessarily co-located. Now, you know, the market's evolving, and and we're now actually starting to see that there may be opportunities of co-locating batteries with solar specifically. This is because solar, unlike wind, has a kind of particular shape. People talk about, you know, the duck curve. So, you know, you have most generation at midday and you have quite um, low consumption at that at that time. So so you have excess energy during the kind of midday peak and then you have more consumption in the evening and, and more consumption in the morning when you have when you have less uh, solar. So in that sense, batteries and, and, and solar could potentially you know, be be complementary. This is not necessarily the case with wind, which is sort of more unpredictable and, and has also a higher utilization of the grid connection because it tends to be the wind has more, you know, it, it takes up much more of the grid connection than the solar does. So yeah, so so it's not that co-location is, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's more challenging because you have to ensure that the system is built in a way that allows the battery and the solar to operate hand in hand. And you have to think about the grid connection and, and, and making sure that it can accommodate both the solar and the, and the battery. If you think about the battery, it's, um, we talked about the battery you know, taking power from the system and putting it back on. That means you need a bi-directional grid connection. If you're just putting a solar, it, it, it can be one directional and it doesn't have to be as fast. And so there are there are implications of of building co-located systems, but we're now starting to look at opportunities whether whether it does make financial sense to start co-locating. And you've got a, a relatively new facility in Dundee, which is in terms of scale is much bigger, isn't it? Fifty megawatts, which is quite sizable, certainly as as far as batteries are concerned. I think that's quite a big facility, isn't it? And that uh, can't help noticing that's quite close to a lot of the offshore wind generation is is that a factor you know the 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 location and what it's near to the proximity to things like renewables when you're citing um, these uh, things yeah so so our site in in dundee as you say it's located in scotland and so it benefits from what's called constraint revenues um and these are you know the result of the, the limited ability of the system to flow effectively the electricity between north where where most of the generation in the uk happens and and the south where the majority of the consumption happens so batteries that are you know on the scottish grid can help alleviate those physical constraints through the balancing mechanism without necessarily 
needing to be physically co-located, as we, as we said before. And effectively, they, they kind of do this by, by storing the surplus electricity at, at lower cost to the end consumer than switching off wind farms. So, you know, if you have excess generation in the, in the north and you can't push that down to the south where the consumption is needed, well, the government has to pay the wind farms to stop generating and it has to pay generation in the south to turn on, which you know, is hugely costly to the consumer and, and completely illogical. But you have this problem of, of the transmission network not being able to, to flow the needed electrons down to the south. You know, so, so batteries can help that by rather than turning off the wind, they can, they can absorb that power and store it for later when it's, when it's needed. Let's, let's um, turn to the, the sort of financing of, of, and, and how you structure uh, the finances of a, a battery storage facility and, and your company. Because a lot of renewables rely on power purchase agreements, long-term sort of guaranteed payments. And presumably that's not something available for batteries because of the nature of, you know, they, they charge and discharge and, and so they're operating the shorter timescales. So what, what kind of challenges has that presented for eel power in terms of raising finance? Yeah, yeah. So you're right. Batteries don't generate power, as we said. They they time shift it. So so there are no PPAs or, or subsidies or, or any sort of kind of support mechanisms for batteries. But that in a way is the point. I mean batteries should and do make decent returns without the need for those. I think the main issue with the the asset class is is you know as with any new asset class is that it's not really understood it's not understood by the investor community and and there isn't much history to show the track record so you know the use of batteries for the grid is is still relatively novel and so there are a lot of uncertainties about you know we talked about degradation and and how long they will operate and and when do you need to replace the cells and and how much that will cost you know, how do they trade the power? What are their capabilities? All of those things. They, they haven't kind of been around for long enough for anyone to be able to point to the history and to demonstrate exactly, you know, what happens when. So all of these things are, are, are relatively unknown. And on the revenue side, you know, the revenue streams, which we talked about earlier, they're also relatively novel and they they move and they they constantly evolve. So it's very difficult for investors to get their head around, you know, what batteries look like in a few years' time and 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 how they make money. So that obviously makes it difficult for investment committees. The other aspect, you know, if if you're trying to think more high level, is well, you know, batteries are are managing volatility and and you have more volatility in a in a highly renewable based system. And so, you know, you need to feel confident, I guess, that, you know, renewables will continue to grow on the system and, and they will create that, that volatility for batteries to take advantage of. And then the other thing investors worry about is, is things like cannibalization. You know, they say, well, you know, if we have more batteries on the system, does that mean that, that the revenue opportunity will be eroded? And all those things kind of taken together mean that, you know, people are still quite cautious on the asset class. And especially, you know, investment committees that probably sit, you know, a few steps removed from from the market and and from the asset class are having a hard time, you know, changing their thinking and 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 moving away from what they know, which is, as you say, PPAs and 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 contracts that effectively provide them with 
visibility over the revenue streams for, yeah, for a period of time. Yeah, of certainty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, but that said, the investor community is getting more and more sophisticated. And, mm. and in the early days, some of the larger optimizers were offering floor contracts, which attempted to give some certainty over the revenues that investors were looking for. But, you know, if you spend a bit of time understanding how batteries operate, for example, in the wholesale markets, you can quickly see that the floors have little value because the assets can make, you know, a certain base level of returns with a, with a high degree of certainty and, and, and relatively limited risk. So the floor contracts were kind of short-lived and were, were viewed as expensive, but they were helpful in getting investors to understand more how the assets were, were operating and, and, and how they were making money and the, and the types of revenues that they were able to secure. We started raising capital back in, in 2018 when I, when I joined, and the asset class and, and, and Neil Power have come a long way. We had over 100 meetings with different investors, effectively educating the market in the early days on the asset class. We were also one of the first to actually have batteries and operate batteries. And so we were able to extract those learnings and, and build some of that history that we talked about earlier and demonstrate how, how the batteries performed and behaved. And we, we closed our first investment in 2020. This was with SUSE, an infrastructure fund based out of, Zur out of Zurich. We then closed another transaction with Next Energy in 21, and, and then a third follow-on investment from Next Energy again in, in 2022. So kind of 2020 was really kind of the breakthrough where, you know, once we had one investor enter the asset class, the others started to follow. There's a bit of herd mentality, I think, also with, within the investment community. And, and once people see, you know, the first one kind of dip their toe, they, um, they get more confident. And, you know, since then, there have been other transactions in the market. There, there have been more players in, in, in this space. And the asset class has, has definitely grown. You know, it's still heavily underinvested, but we are now in a different place and, and definitely much more understood than it has been in, in the past. And, and does it appeal to a particular type of investor? I'm fascin always fascinated by with with things like infrastructure, how different types of investor uh, favor different types of infrastructure and at different stages as well. Is that something you've noticed? Yeah, so so there have been many funding models really of this asset class. I think initially it's been sort of more the the infrastructure funds and and also the listed listed fund model. So, you know, if you look at the likes of, of Gresham House and Gore Street, who are one of the first entrants into this market and, and now Harmony, they have all funded themselves in the public market. You know, you had the likes of Pulse or, or, or Constantine and, and they have, you know, big pension funds as backers. You know, others like Zenobi, who, who have also started off pretty much at the same same time as us. And, you know, they went down kind of the large institution route and, and they have a number of of large institutions on, on their register. And then, you know, you had people like Pivot Power who, who were acquired by ADF and, and, um, and other of the utilities who are also trying to do it themselves, like SSC, building their own sites uh, and so on. So... There has been a kind of, you know, wide range of funding options and, you know, they've all been pretty successful to date. Um, you know, the listed funds in the current environment struggle more, but generally there were different funding models that, that worked. And so, you know, I'm not sure that 
you know, one is better than another. They, they all have their own challenges and they all have their own, their own benefits. Yeah. I, and uh, one, one of the things we talked about a bit earlier was partnerships. I think partnerships are quite important in, in the industry. Is that something you can shed a little light on? Yeah. I mean, you know, like in any business, I mean, partnerships are hugely important and they're hugely important in our business. If you think about, you know, all the different, as I said, pieces of the puzzle in, in putting a site together, we buy, in our case, what's called ready to build sites. And those are sites that have uh, a permissioned grid connection and land rights and a lease. So we don't take risks on those elements. And that means that, you know, we need to have a very good network of developers that we constantly talk to who can come to us and, and let us know when they've got right sites for sale. And, and so, you know, we have a, a, a great execution capability and an execution function that knows the market very well, that understands the asset class very well, and, and so is able to, you know, attract the right type of opportunities so that, so that we can acquire the, the sites. We then have, you know, very, very extensive relationships with, with the battery manufacturers in China. Again, we, we speak to them on a regular basis. And, and as we procure, we, we want to make sure that, you know, we also get, you know, the best type of kit and, and also for the most attractive price. So having those relationships, especially in times when, you know, there was a shortage of, of, of lithium and there were problems in supply chains, being able to, to get access to the batteries was, uh, was an important consideration. If you then kind of go on and think about what happens during the construction phase, you know, there are so many parties that are involved from, from you know, the construction company to the grid, to the DNO, you know, everybody needs to kind of be aligned for this to come together. So all those relationships are hugely important. And equally, you know, in a new asset class where there's a lot of change happening and things are constantly evolving, you know, we also have relationships with the regulator and, and you know, with the government agencies and, you know, in, in influencing how the regulation is evolving around this asset class and just more widely. So, yeah, absolutely. Very, very important part of the business. I mean, probably absolutely critical to the business. Yeah, so relationships are key. And uh, that sort of brings me on to, uh, we, we talked very much about, and thank you for educating us in terms of the, the battery industry and so on. But looking just a little more broadly across what um, you know, what CFOs and senior finance people should be thinking about, have you, is there anything that, that you would advise or you know, suggest other, other CFOs and, and senior finance people should be thinking about? You know, I, I think it's probably kind of stating the obvious, but I, I think it's important to be flexible and, and to plan ahead. Um, you know, I, I always think nothing is ever static and, and the markets change. And especially, I think, in the current, you know, sort of more difficult funding environment, that's, again, a kind of temporary state, right? And, you know, downturn markets also present opportunities. And so, so being prepared and being ready to sometimes act in these challenging environments is an opportunity, right? Uh, we kind of saw a period of, of peak prices for assets as, as funding flew into the, um, into the asset class. But now we're kind of seeing a risk-off attitude from, from investors, and that is resulting in more reasonable asset prices and, and consolidation opportunities, you know, as those who cannot fund those assets are, are putting them up for sale. So, you know, I think, I think like I said, you know, be, be flexible and, and, and plan ahead. And, and also, especially in our asset class that is, as I said, fast moving and, and, and changing, 
you know, it's good to be kind of proactive and, and drive the change and, and influence how things are developing by, you know, we talked about influencing regulation and, and funding models and so on. But also it's important to know kind of what's realistic and achievable in the context of the environment around you. So, yeah, life kind of throws curveballs, And in business, it's the same, you know, the environment changes and, and you kind of need to be, be prepared. Yeah, so keep keep your eye on the horizon and 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 looking for for what opportunities are out there. Yeah, and, yeah, and yes, yeah. Very good. Well, I think we, we're sort of coming to the end now. But um, before we do finish, there's been an awful lot you've talked about there, which could be of interest to people, whether that's people with uh, ready to build sites or anybody that's interested in uh, any of the things we've talked about. Really, How, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. So, you know, you can you can look me up and send me a message on LinkedIn. I think there's also on our website a place where, where you can get in touch. Yeah, we would love to hear from you. Sure. Well, we'll, uh, we'll also put a link to your uh, LinkedIn profile on the show notes. So like I say, this has been a really fascinating talk. I've learned a lot and I'm sure a lot of other people will as well about this relatively new asset class so uh, very much thank you for uh, for coming on and uh, telling us all about it and it's been great to have you on so thanks very much for appearing on the forward thinking cfo pleasure thank you for having me 